Welcome to Sleep Cues, the everything baby sleep podcast. I'm Erin, pediatric sleep consultant and founder of The Happy Sleep Company. From catnaps to night wakes and regressions to teething, we cover all things baby sleep. With a passion for children's sleep, we're here to help tired families get healthy rest. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. It's almost the end of summer. It's crazy. I know we all, everyone I run into is saying it's crazy. It's almost the end of summer. How did summer go by so fast? But I don't know if it's because as our kiddos get older, it feels like summers go by more quickly or what, but this one of all the summers since I've had a child seemed to go by so fast. We are almost into September, which means as sleep consultants, we are almost into what we call busy season because usually our July and Augusts are very slow relative to the busyness that is the rest of the year. And why? Because it's really tough to want to be on a schedule or work on your baby's sleep at home in their crib when you have your summer months full of beach days and cottages and barbecues and pool parties. Nobody wants to concentrate on their baby's sleep schedule during those months, or very few people do. But then comes September, everyone is like, hey, 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 let's get this sleep schedule on track. Let's get my baby's independent sleep on track. We need rest. So coming up to very busy season for us and lots of questions starting to come in from all over the map, all different ages, all different questions and sleep challenges. Today is Q&A Tuesday. So I pulled out five questions that I've gotten over the last few days in my DM box on Instagram, and we're going to go through those. First one is about finger sucking, like thumb sucking. My baby sucks her fingers to fall asleep. Is this a bad habit? I would suggest it's not. I know that there are parents who are going to be very concerned about their child sucking their thumb or sucking their fingers. It is certainly possible because it's a thing that happens that a child could suck on their thumb or their fingers for so long that it can cause dental issues. It's a thing. It can happen. Is it the norm that a child who sucks their thumb or fingers then has dental issues later on? I would suggest that it's not. Far more children suck their thumbs and fingers as infants. It's a very normal thing to do at that age. It's a very common self-soothing technique. Far more children suck their thumb and fingers at that age and their mouths end up just fine than children who have to have like corrective dental surgery to deal with this issue later on. With all of that said, Of course, you have to keep that in mind and know that it's a possibility, but it's it's not the probability. It's not the majority of children who suck their fingers or thumbs that then have issues with their mouths later on. But I know that's a concern for a lot of parents. In my experience, children get out of the habit of sucking their thumbs or fingers as they get a little older. So that's why I would suggest that in general, again, in general, it's not a bad habit. It's a normal thing. It's not really something you can even avoid. You can't just continually be pulling your child's finger or thumb out of their mouth when they are a baby and they're trying to self-soothe with their fingers. Again, it's so normal that you're just going to be really disrupting their sleep if you're constantly going in and pulling their fingers or their thumb out of their mouth to try to avoid this becoming a habit. So I would be more inclined to not worry about it becoming too much of a habit and know that in general, it's a habit that goes away. It's something that they do in infancy and toddlerhood that goes away. A lot of parents will bring this up with me when we're talking about pacifiers because parents who use pacifiers will be concerned that when they remove the pacifier, 
their child is going to replace it with a thumb or their fingers, and then that's going to be a harder habit to break than the pacifier. I would suggest that's not the case. And I always use this analogy. If you go to a playground, you are likely to see a lot more three and four-year-olds running around with pacifiers in their mouths than with their thumbs or their fingers in their mouths. Why is that? Because if you have a pacifier in your mouth, you can still use both of your hands to play and explore and have fun at the playground. If you have your thumb or your fingers in your mouth, you have to take them out to play and explore and have fun. So that is how the habit usually breaks. That is how children normally get away from constantly having their thumb or their fingers in their mouth because as they become a toddler, they want to crawl, they want to walk, they want to play, they want to run, they want to explore, they take their fingers and thumbs out of their mouths more and more, and then the habit generally goes away. So bottom line, is it possible that it can become a long-term habit and cause issues? It is, and we have to be aware of that. But in general, children stop sucking their thumbs and fingers as they exit toddlerhood. Then I had a question about getting rid of the pacifier. So let's just segue into that. I have a 14-week-old who is heavily reliant on the pacifier to get to sleep and constantly spits it out and needs it replaced. How do I get rid of it? This question is a lot like any other question about a sleep crutch, which is what I would call a pacifier. So do keep in mind that the AAP and Health Canada advise that use of the pacifier in the early months of your child's life can reduce the risk of sudden infant death syndrome. So it's not at all a bad idea. It's actually advised to use a pacifier if you can, if your child will take it in the early months. But when we see it becoming quite a habit that your child is spitting it out and you're having to replace it, they're not getting proper rest because they're up all night long or only taking tiny naps because they spit out the pacifier and and then they need it replaced. This is where we often see, okay, it's become a crutch. It's become a sleep prop and it's become something that this family has decided they now need to get rid of in order to get their baby and themselves proper rest. So how do we get rid of the pacifier? We get rid of the pacifier the same way we get rid of any other sleep crutch, like feeding to sleep or rocking to sleep or sleeping in the bed with your child. If you've been doing those things and you're ready to make a change from that and have your child sleeping independently in their crib without the props, we remove them. The real question is not how do we do that? Because how do we do that? We just, we stop doing it. We stop feeding to sleep. We put our baby in the crib awake. We stop offering the pacifier. We put our baby down without it. The real question is what do we do when our babies are upset about that? And that's sleep coaching. It is only realistic that if our baby has learned to fall asleep a certain way, they are going to be upset about now learning to fall asleep a very different way. Example, without a pacifier, when they've become used to sleeping with a pacifier. But as parents, again, we often get to that point where we realize, I know you prefer to sleep with a pacifier, But as the adult in this scenario, I can recognize that you're not getting enough sleep due to that pacifier. So we need to make this change, even though it's not what you would prefer. Sleep coaching is how we get to the other side of this. Sleep coaching means we remove the sleep crutches. We teach your little one how to go into the crib awake and fall asleep using just their own sleep skills. It does not need to be cry it out extinction where you just put your baby in a crib awake and walk away and don't return and leave them to cry for huge extended periods of time without any support. Sleep coaching does not need to look like that. If your baby's going to be upset, which realistically we need to assume they will be when we're making this change, we want to have a plan for managing those tears in a way that is not just leaving your baby alone 
for huge extended periods of time without support. We want your baby to hear your voice and feel your touch and be picked up for a hug if your baby needs a hug. Those things can, and in my opinion, should be involved in a great strategy for sleep coaching. We want to be there for your baby. We want to offer reassurance, love, and support, but we don't want to offer the sleep crutches anymore because then we're giving your baby the opportunity to learn to sleep a different way. You might take a sit in the room approach where you're there the whole time until your baby falls asleep right next to them, offering support and reassurance, but not offering sleep crutches. You might take a leave and check approach where you're leaving the room, but you're deciding how long you're comfortable waiting and then going back in to reassure your child. Again, offering words, offering touch, giving a hug if a hug is needed, but not using the sleep crutches that you used to use if your goal is getting rid of those and teaching your baby a different way. There are various approaches to sleep coaching that don't have to be just cry it out where your baby doesn't get any support. Next question. My baby was born 11 days late. Should I follow the sleep schedule advice by birthday or by due date? Let's talk about premature babies first. This baby was 11 days late. If a baby was premature, like born before 37 weeks gestation, that's what's generally considered premature, then I do suggest the family go by their baby's adjusted age and not by their actual age. So we subtract the amount of time before their due date that they were born. And generally, I do find with premature babies, we do need to give them a little less awake time than their actual age. We need to look more at their adjusted age when we're deciding on their wake windows and their sleep schedule. But this question is about a baby who was 11 days late. I don't generally see that babies who were born a bit late need a different sleep schedule than if they'd just been born on their due date. So in general, I would suggest, you hear me say in general a lot, don't you? That's because babies are different. Not every baby is the same as the next baby. But of course, like anything else, there is advice for certain ages that generally works well for babies of that age. So in general, I don't find that babies who were born a bit late need a different schedule than if they'd been born on their due date. I do find that generally babies who were born late are just fine with the wake windows and the scheduling advice as a baby who was born on their actual due date or closer to their actual due date. So again, going back to what I said a a minute ago though, not every baby is exactly the same. If your baby was born 11 days late and you are finding that you're trying to follow the sleep schedule and wake window advice for if they'd been born on their due date and your baby just doesn't seem tired enough. Your baby does not seem tired enough. Example, a four and a half month old. You listen to this podcast and I told you that a four and a half month old can generally be up for a couple of hours before you put them down again. So you're following this two hour wake window for your four and a half month old who was born 11 days late. And you're just finding, you know what, Aaron, this baby is not tired at two hours of awake time. He's just not. And this baby was also born 11 days late. I think that my individual baby who I am at home with, I see his sleepy cues or lack thereof every day. I feel as his parent that he's not getting enough awake time with this and I need to give him a bit more that's okay. You know your baby best. It's a great idea to educate yourself about schedules and wake windows, but look at your individual baby, look at their tired signs and their sleepy cues, and then you can balance all of that out and decide what will work best for your individual baby. Next question is about a four-month-old. Baby is almost four months. When can we expect to see longer naps? 
All right, quick pause, because what is more important to talk about when it comes to sleep than what we actually sleep on? I want to tell you about my very favorite mattress brand, Obison. Whether we're talking mom and dad, kiddo, or baby, Obison is my go-to for comfort when it comes to your family's sleep surface. You wouldn't want your family to sleep on anything less than the very best, and that starts with the best materials in the world. Obison's mattresses are handcrafted in Canada, and their materials are organic, ethically sourced, and chemical-free. Babies' body temperatures tend to fluctuate while they sleep. Obison's mattresses are breathable and moisture-wicking to help regulate babies' temperature levels throughout the night. And comfort knows no age, so Obison's organic 6-inch mattress for kids also features evolving support as your children grow and grow and grow. My own little girl sleeps on an Obison mattress, and it is a dream. And when it comes to custom sleep, Obison is all in. That's why in addition to mattresses, they also offer you five distinct pillows with unique designs and different fillings that serve every sleeping style and meet both your toddler's needs and your own as grown-ups. We want your kids sleeping great. Use code HAPPYSLEEP at checkout and receive a free wool moisture pad when you purchase a crib mattress. Head to obison.com and obison.ca and get great sleep started. Short naps happen for a few reasons. If your baby is a really great little independent sleeper, doesn't need any sleep crutches to get to sleep, sleeps through the night, but is still taking short naps and is under about four and a half to five months of age, that's really normal. It is very normal that children under about four and a half to five months have mostly short naps. Their bodies just aren't ready to consolidate their daytime sleep into longer naps yet. So even if you've got all the right sleep stuff in place, you might be seeing short naps at this age. However, Usually around four and a half to five months, we start to see babies more consistently consolidate their daytime sleep into longer naps. So hang on, mama. If you have an almost four-month-old who's not giving you many long naps yet, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you are likely going to see those around four and a half to five months. However, if your baby is not an independent sleeper, if your baby is really reliant on some sleep crutches, pacifier, rocking to sleep, feeding to sleep, etc., to get to sleep you may still see short naps even after that four and a half to five month mark until your baby does become an independent sleeper. It's not every baby. Some babies will go down with sleep crutches and have a two hour nap, but many babies who go to sleep with sleep crutches will wake up after 30 to 45 minutes every time because they get in a light stage of sleep, trying to transition from one sleep cycle to the next. And then they wake up fully and realize their sleep crutch isn't there. And then they can't get back to sleep. So the goal, again, with sleep coaching is to remove the sleep crutches so your baby can go both to sleep independently and back to sleep independently. So when they wake up from a nap at that 30 to 45 minute mark, they have the skills to just get comfy again and go back to sleep and have that great two hour nap. So usually four and a half to five months is when we start to see more consistently long naps, but we usually have to have the independent sleep skills in place to see that happen. Last question for today is about a one-year-old and daycare. My 12-month-old is going to daycare soon and they only offer one nap. Do we do that schedule on weekends too or do we do her normal two naps on the weekends? I would suggest that you start by trying to stick with two naps on the weekends. Actually, first things first, talk to your daycare. See if maybe you just haven't asked. Maybe you just need to have the conversation. If your daycare would be willing to offer two naps at daycare, it's worth asking. They might say no, To be honest, they'll probably say no because it's really inconvenient for daycares to offer some kids a two-nap schedule and other kids a one-nap schedule. I get that. It's really logistically challenging to do that. So this is why most daycares only offer one nap 
in the middle of the day for all the children, no matter their age. But it's worth the conversation. It's worth trying. So do ask your daycare if they could maybe accommodate your child's current great two-nap schedule. If they can't and they're only going to offer one nap from Monday to Friday at daycare, then yes, I would start by planning to have two naps each day on Saturdays and Sundays if your child has already been doing really well with that schedule at home prior to going to daycare. It can kind of help your child's body clock catch up to a more age-appropriate schedule on weekends. However, some children are going to get really used to just having one nap a day at around noon, 12 p.m., every day, Monday to Friday. And then when the weekends roll around and you try to put them down for their two-nap schedule and you're putting them down around 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning for their first nap, some children's body clocks are going to say, no, 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 no. This isn't when I sleep anymore. My body is not ready to sleep right now. This is not when my body normally goes to sleep. I need a couple more hours. So if your child's body clock just gets really used to the noon, 12 p.m. nap, they may not go down for two naps on the weekends, and you may just have to move to a one-nap schedule on the weekends too. But again, it's worth trying. It's worth starting with a two-nap schedule on the weekends and seeing if your child is the child who will still take two naps on Saturdays and Sundays. And then if it doesn't work out and you find they're refusing one of the naps on the weekends, then you could just move to a one-nap schedule, but at least you've exhausted your other options first. Keep in mind, my advice is always an early bedtime for a young toddler who's already on a one-nap schedule. If your child is under about 16 to 18 months and already moving to a one-nap schedule, you are probably going to find that a six o'clock bedtime is needed to avoid the overtiredness that can then disrupt nights. So six o'clock, 6.30, absolutely latest for a child under 16 months of age who's already on one nap is generally going to work best for that child to combat sleep debt, to combat the overtiredness that can then often build up and start causing things like night wakes or early morning wake-ups. Six o'clock bedtime for the win. That is a wrap on the top five for the week. I hope that was helpful. I hope everyone is thoroughly enjoying their last week or two of summer and getting ready for the fall season. And I hope everyone's ready to just get sleep back on track if it's gone awry for the summer. And I hope that the advice you find on this podcast can help you do that. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Sleep Cues, the everything baby sleep podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with a mom or dad who might need some rest. Connect with us on Instagram at The Happy Sleep Company and check out our website, thehappysleepcompany.com for loads of blogs, sleep guides, and information about how we work with families one-on-one to get sleep on track.